Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust over and sugar like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? These are the words of Langston Hughes. He wrote them in 1951. He is, in many ways, the poet laureate of the Harlem Renaissance. And in his many poems, he captures the voice of a people who have gone beyond the point of endurance. Over the last few weeks, we have seen what it looks like when a dream deferred explodes. Our cities have endured a week of upheaval, burning, and looting. And at the same time, well-meaning people on either side of the discussion have expressed to me and probably to you a great deal of personal pain both at the extent of the violence and at the underlying injustices that cause it. As Christians, we find ourselves kind of at the center of this node. As men and women who have been called by Christ to be peacemakers, we often find ourselves in the midst of injustice and rage Wondering, how can we speak to this? How can we speak when everyone around us is screaming? And it's in times like this that the sovereignty of God becomes manifest. Even in the passage that we're going to be going through this morning. I was talking to the earlier service about how So many of you have come up to me over the last several months and said, oh, pastor, I I think I see where you're going. Cool, where am I going? I I don't have a, there's no overarching plan to the sermons. I'm preaching through the book of Acts. And believe me when I tell you this, I take each passage as it comes. And yet, God has so arranged things in this church that on a day when we are dealing with riots, we find Paul in the midst of a riot. When we, when we came together two weeks ago to talk about this, we saw has Paul, uh, through a series of mistakes and miscalculations, finds himself in the midst of a desperate situation. On the one hand, he is faced by a mob of people that hate him and have every intention of killing him. A mob that has been so incensed by 
radical nationalism and religious fervor that they are prepared to commit murder in the courtyard of the temple. And on the other side, you have the Roman army. Now, I will tell you, nobody is better at quelling riots than the Romans. I've gone through riot training. I've dealt with riots. The Romans are the best because the Romans just kill everybody. That's their plan. They don't have an escalation of force. There's no force continuum with the Romans. There's off and there's kill. And so they come down into the area with armor and shields and swords. They grab Paul because that's what you do in a riot is you identify the troublemaker, you isolate them, and then you bring them in. And they've done it quickly. And now Paul is in chains and he is being dragged up the steps to the Antonian fortress. We need to understand and see what this looks like in our mind. The temple in Jerusalem is up on top of the hill that Jerusalem is built on. But overlooking that temple is the Antonian fortress. It is a large stone fortress that represents the domination of Rome over the Jews. From the towers of this temple, they can see down, from the towers of the fortress, they can see down into the temple, and they can identify riots when they start. They can see who the troublemakers are, and then they can come down and take care of them. The steps that Paul is being dragged up are the same steps that Jesus stood on as the crowd yelled, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. That's where Paul is right now. And Paul's response to the rage of the Jews and the injustice of the Romans can speak to us as we attempt to try to answer some of these questions. As he jumps from the frying pan and into the fire, we can see his heart. Watch his mind move and find truths that we can pull and use. First thing that we see is that Paul fundamentally has a problem of identity. And identity is a tricky thing. Because for so many of us, who we see as ourselves is not who the world sees. Yesterday, we went to the Guadalupe River. And my wife told me that I was quite handsome with my beard and my sunglasses on. That's right. It is cute. Aw. I didn't realize that I was as handsome as I am. <laughs> but now I do. Shame on you guys for not telling me more how handsome I am. Identity and how we see ourselves can cause immense problems for us in the world that we live in. Because so often the people around us do not see us for who we see ourselves to be. In an extreme case, this is what ultimately causes autism. Autism is so catastrophic because the person has an inability to see themselves the way other people see them. But this causes problems for all of us. We see this during times of social turmoil like we're living through. As we look at 
the riots and the underlying problems associated with it. Each of us bears a false identity. Those people that are down protesting, for many of us, we see them as black-clad Antifa radicals. All of them. If you're a police officer, many people probably see you as a heartless thug out to use your badge to abuse people. If you are not actively supporting the protesters, well, you're a racist and a terrible person. And on and on until we tear ourselves apart as a society based on the lies that we believe about other people. And so Paul struggles with an identity crisis right now. People think that he is someone that he is not. The Jews think that he is someone that has come to destroy the traditions of Moses. And the Romans, well, we're going to see who the Romans think he is. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And the tribune said, Do you know Greek? This is a shock to him. See, the entire... Riot has been conducted in Aramaic, the trade language of the day, the common language that the people would be speaking. But this Roman tribune who is dragging this man up the stairs, hear Paul speak to him in the educated language of philosophers and poets. He speaks to him in Greek. And the tribune has to stop for a second because, see, he's been operating under a set of assumptions that are not actually true. The tribune said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? See, to the Romans, to the tribune, this man of action, he knows exactly what's happening down here. He has made a snap judgment. There is a riot going on in the temple and I know what's causing it. See, there's a group of people at this point in time called the Sicarii. It means the dagger men. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how Jewish nationalism it was ramping up in Jerusalem leading up to the Jewish-Roman war that will end with the temple being destroyed. Well, as this is happening, more and more people are becoming upset. There's more and more uprisings, and the Romans keep putting the uprisings down. And this kind of repression leads to the formation of a terrorist group, the Dagger Men. What they would do is they would find pro-Roman Jews... And they would stalk them through public gatherings. They did this to the Jewish high priest not long before this. They stalked them through the crowd. And when the crowd reaches a crescendo of noise, they stab him to death. Drop their knives and run off. These dagger men were organized by an Egyptian charlatan who gathered them all together. And he said, hey... I'm the Messiah. Guess what? We're going to go to the Mount of Olives and we're going to wait. And when I say a word, when we shout, the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall down, we're going to rush in there and kill all the Romans. It didn't happen. What did happen was the governor, Felix, sent a group of soldiers. They surrounded them and killed most of them. But the ringleader escaped. He ran away. And the tribune, 
looking at the riot, is thinking, aha, they found this man, and now they're going to beat him to death. But before they beat him to death, I'm going to go ahead and have words with him. But in a moment, Paul calmly begins to speak to the Romans to reestablish his identity as somebody other than the stereotype. He says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus of Silesia, a citizen of no obscure city, and I beg you to permit me to speak to the people. What is Paul doing? He's calmly speaking to the tribune, and that calmness injects a moment of pause. Sometimes the best thing that we can do in the face of rage and injustice is to speak calmly and to allow our calm to de-escalate the situation. To gather the time that we need to see the other person for who they actually are. And hopefully so that they can see us for who we are. This is the role of the peacemaker. The role of the Christian. What's the next thing that Paul does? Paul uses the protection of the Roman soldiers to attempt to reason with the crowd and to show them that he is not the monster that he th- they think he is. He begins his defense respectfully and in the language of the crowd. Right? He begins, so Paul is trilingual. I mean, he can speak Aramaic, he can speak Greek, and now he's going to speak to the crowd in Hebrew. And when he speaks to the crowd in Hebrew and he tells them, be, be quiet, we can watch him with his hands as he says, let me talk, let me talk. And the crowd calms down and they begin to listen. They begin to open their minds to the things that he's going to say. And how does he start? He begins the way that Stephen started when Stephen spoke to the Sanhedrin. He says, brothers and fathers, not, hey, you dirty rioters, you evil Jews. No, he says, brothers and fathers, we are connected by blood, kinship. Listen to me. I'm not who you think I am. And he begins to lay out his testimony. This is important for us to understand. The strongest tool that any of us has as we begin to speak to others is our testimony. It is the message of who we were and who we are now, and who we got there. The biggest, strongest, most powerful tool that we have to change other people's minds is not philosophy. It's not the talking points you get from Ben Shapiro, or CNBC, or CNN. It is our own testimony of how Christ has changed us. And so he begins to lay out who he was. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Silesia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He's saying, I'm not some half-Jewish, Hellenized radical that's come here to steal your culture. 
I grew up in Tar... I, I was born in Tarsus, but I grew up here in the city. I'm one of you. I studied under the great teacher Gamaliel. And I'm zealous for the law. This is how zealous he was. Gamaliel was actually kind of a moderate. If we remember back to the first couple of chapters of Acts, we see Gamaliel in the Sanhedrin talking to the Jewish council when they want to go and kill all the Christians. And he says, hey, whoa, 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 calm down. One or two things is going to happen here. Either this is a fake religion started by a charlatan, in which case it'll pass away like all the other messiahs, or it's actually from God, and then we're going to stand in the way of God. Let's see how it pans out. That's what Camillo wanted to do. Not Saul, who would become Paul. No, he was a radical. He was like, Christianity is a problem, and I'm the solution. And let me tell you how I'm going to fix this problem. If there are no Christians, we have no problem. So I'm going to go ahead and kill them all. And so he goes house to house, dragging people out, killing them, torturing them, forcing them to recant. Why is Paul telling them this? He's saying, look, I know where you come from, and I am more zealous than you could ever be. You guys are talking zealotry. I actually did it. He wanted them to understand that he was not a sellout, that he was orthodox, but that something happened. And so he begins to talk about this crisis in his life. And crisis is the unifying feature in all humanity. All of us come to a place where everything that we have stood on, everything that we have relied on, is taken from us. And it is that moment of crisis that God uses to draw us into relationship with him. And so Paul begins to talk about what this crisis looked like in his life. He says, as I was on my way to Damascus and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. In this case, Paul's crisis comes in a very real and physical sense when the incarnate Christ knocks him to the ground and blinds him. Now, not everybody's crisis comes like that, but everybody's crisis is catastrophic personally. One of the things that we need to realize as Christians as we come into a time like this, when everything is being taken away and everything is falling apart, is this is the time of opportunity. As everyone has what they relied on taken away, the illusions and the lies that we build our lives on, as they get swept away, this is the opportunity for us to tell them about the one person that is not going to leave them. About the one truth that does not fade away. About the reality that underlays and is the bedrock of the life that we live. This is why testimony can be so important. And so Paul begins to talk to them about he went from, how he went from crisis to conversion. 
right? We all have crisis, but it's that leap from crisis to conversion that is the difference between salvation and damnation. In this case, that conversion comes through a man named Ananias who is a devout Jewish man according to the law, well spoken of by everyone around him. Paul has gone through this series of supernatural changes and these supernatural changes draw him into relationship with Christ until finally he submits to baptism and has his sins taken from him. Why tell them all this? He's saying, I'm a different person now than the one I used to be. I've changed. I saw Christ and it transformed me. See, based with violence and rage, Paul responds to the truth of conversion. The reality that destroys all rage and salves all injustice. He is evangelizing in the face of unreasoning hatred. But he doesn't stay there. See, he begins to move beyond that. He talks to them about what his experience was like in Jerusalem and how he was praying in the temple and how he received a message from God and how God sent him out to the Gentiles in this incredibly powerful way. Instead of defending himself, Paul is attempting to address the larger issue, the issue at the heart of all of their problems. He's trying to make them see that following Christ is not rebellion against God. It is the highest form of faithfulness to God. He's not a rebel. He's a prophet. He's a missionary. Brothers and sisters, oh, that we would be missionaries in the face of a crisis that we would look beyond our political agendas, we would look beyond our political allegiances to our true allegiance, which is the cause of Christ. That we would sacrifice everything on the altar of the gospel. That we would realize that we are not at its core social justice warriors or American patriots, but that we are citizens of a city that we cannot see. That we are the subjects of a king whose priorities extend far beyond November. But we need to understand this. While this is the appropriate way for Paul to respond, it doesn't really do much to calm the crowd. The crowd responds to the reasoned words of truth that Paul spoke to them with more rage and more violence. Up to this word, they listened to him. But as soon as he said that he was being sent to the Gentiles, the people that they hated, their response is to lose their mind. They say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. And this is another important lesson for us to understand. See, we are taught in our society that evil is the result of ignorance. Right? 
that if we would just learn more, then we would be less likely to commit acts of violence, right? Now, why do we say that? Because underlying all of this is the idea that we are all good people and that the world that we live in causes us to sin, that each of us is a beautiful flower, a shining gem that just needs to be cleaned off, and then we'll glow with an inner fire. Except, and that sounds great, man. That's a great message, except it's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that all evil in the world comes from human sin. It comes from inside of our heart, right? What does Jesus say? It's not the things outside of the world that come into you that make you unholy. It's your heart. And the things that come out of your mouth that make you unholy. We're not sinful because the world is sinful. The world is sinful because we are fallen. And so just because we learn about somebody else, it doesn't mean that we're going to love them. One of the best books on Middle Eastern politics that I've ever read is by Thomas Friedman. It's called From Beirut to Jerusalem, and he has a really interesting point in there. He says, the problems in the Middle East between the Jews and the Palestinians have nothing to do with education. They fully understand who the other person are. The Jews want to stay in Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, create their own state. The Palestinians want to drive them into the sea. They both understand it, and there's no room for compromise. All that is left is violence and chaos. We need to understand that it is not education that stops violence. It is compassion and a changed heart. It is only on the other side of conversion that we have what we need to overcome the innate sinfulness in every human heart. And that transcends race. And it transcends culture. It is the fundamental underlying reality of the world that we live in. That every single person needs Christ. And without Christ, we are left as beasts to tear each other apart. Well, what happens next? Paul has just spoken truth to the face of rage and been turned down. But now he has another problem. See, the Roman tribune behind him has no idea what he's been saying. You know what he sees? He sees this, y'all be calm, be calm, be calm. Everybody chill out. Everybody chills out. And then Paul talks for 10 minutes and everybody is worse than when he started. Now listen to me. I've been in that tribune's position when people from another culture are rioting and your, your first instinct is we're going to get this under control one way or the other. We tried your way and now we're going to try my way. And my way involves a beating. So what do they do? They grab up Paul and they drag him inside to the Antonian fortress. Well, why? The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Now, at no point does the tribune say, hey, man, why are they so mad at you? What did you say, dude? No, no, no. We're going to go straight to the beating. 
We're going to examine you by flogging. Let's understand what this means. Now, Paul has been beaten before. Paul's pretty tough. He can take a beating. He's been beaten with rods. They've stoned him a couple of times. He's been left for dead. Okay? But they're going to examine him by flogging. This is what they did to Jesus before they crucified him. What they're going to do is they're going to take a nine-stranded whip, and each one of those strands has a metal ball at the end of it. And then because the Romans don't do anything halfway, they're going to take the rest of that strap and they're going to put fish hooks in it and pieces of bone and they're going to put glass in it and all kind of other, you know, if they had those jacks and Legos, if they had Legos, they'd put Legos in it. And then they'd beat you and the balls would tenderize the skin, and then the fish hooks would rip the skin out. Anybody who's ever seen The Passion of the Christ knows that the scourging scene is the worst part of the whole movie. That's what they're about to do to this guy. They're about to literally beat him to within an inch of his life and probably beyond. What's Paul's response to this? We need to understand the power imbalance in the room, by the way. Power is all on the side of the Romans at this point. They have the entire edifice of Roman imperial power behind them. The room is filled with big, strong men in armor with swords. Paul is one dude, he's sickly, and he has no control. And yet, Paul is able to dismantle this entire system with one simple question. In response to the injustice that he is about to endure, he responds the same way that he responded to the crowd, with truth. What does he do? He says, "Um, is it lawful for you guys to scourge a Roman citizen? He asks the centurion, is what you're doing lawful? The Romans absolutely had the power to beat Paul to death. They could crucify a thousand Judeans and never be stopped. But they could not beat a Roman citizen without a trial. And the Romans were serious about that. You beat a Roman citizen without a trial, you could lose your own citizenship. They could put you as a slave in a galley. See, having the power to do something and the right to do something are two completely different things. And this is an important question for all of us to remember when we face the power of repressive government. Whether it is a mayor who closes churches illegally or police officers who use unlawful or excessive force. Regardless of the circumstance, someone has to stand up and ask the question, is this right? And they have to keep asking the question until they get an answer and until the injustice ends. As the great orator Edmund Burke once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And there is power in that question. Is this right? Is what you're doing lawful? 
Paul's one brazen question puts in train a series of inquiries that culminate in the hair's breadth escape from what could have been a mortal beating. As soon as he asks that, everybody starts looking. You get this image, right? Everybody starts like looking at each other like, what's going on, man? What are you doing? The centurion stops and he goes into the other room and we have this kind of comic exchange. It's not really comic, but it's a little bit funny if you pay attention to it. The, tribune, or the, the, the centurion goes into the tribune and goes, hey man, what are you about to do? The tribune ain't about to do anything. He ordered the centurion to do the beating, but the, the centurion saying, man, you're about to break the law. What are you doing, man? This guy's a Roman citizen. The tribune comes running into the room. He's like, whoa, nobody said anything about you being a Roman citizen. He's like, well, you didn't ask. You just stripped me down and start beating me. And we have this exchange as the Roman tribune says, you're a citizen? I'm a citizen, but it took me a lot of money to buy my citizenship. And Paul says, no, I was born a citizen. That means that his father or his grandfather was made a citizen by somebody. You don't be, you're not made a citizen unless you have done something extremely valuable in the service of the empire. So right now, they have somebody of some substance that they are about to violate terribly. But here's the other thing we need to realize. This does not result in Paul's release. They don't beat him to death, which is a plus. He's addressed the injustice of the Roman tribune with truth, and the response is fear, but it's also captivity. Paul will spend the next three to four years of his life in prison as they try to figure out what they're going to do about this. And yet despite this fear and the loss of his freedom and injustice, this injustice will serve to bring Paul to the heart of Roman power as God's plan is unfolded in the midst of human sin and failure. This is what the gospel means, or not the gospel, this is what Paul means when he says, God works all things together for the good who, of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because you may not like it. It may not be great. But God is using that for his glory and our good. See, Paul responded to the rage of the Jews and the injustices of the Romans with truth. He didn't back down from conflict and he wasn't cowed by violence. Instead, he was consistent in calmly speaking truth to rage and to power. But what was the truth that he spoke? He spoke the truth of the gospel. He clearly articulated the underlying fundamental reality that changes everything. He wasn't a revolutionary. He didn't seek to overthrow existing power structures. He was a missionary that sought to break down the strongholds of sin and ignorance within the men and women he encountered it in. Brothers and sisters, all sin is based on the lies of the devil and speaking truth enables us to break down those strongholds. So as Christians, as Christians, we have to respond to the injustice and the rage of our time with truth. So what's the truth? The truth is 
that several weeks ago an African African American man named George Floyd was killed unjustly while under restraint by police using excessive force. That's the truth. That's a fact. His death comes close on the heels of the widely publicized murder of Ahmed Arbery in Georgia and the harassment of African American bird watchers in New York City and many, many more. These incidents have illustrated and punctuated a growing awareness that we have a problem here. A large number of our brothers and sisters do not feel heard or valued or safe. And while we can discuss and debate the nature of racism, we we can have all kinds of discussions about why the situation is the way that it is, What we can't debate are the facts that we find in our nation. And those facts are that whether we want it to or not, the single biggest defining factor in a person's success or failure is their race. Now, we can hide from that. We can run from it. We can bridle at it and say, well, that's dumb and it doesn't make sense. Or we can face it head on and ask ourselves why black women are three to four times more likely to experience a pregnancy-related death than white women. We can ask ourselves why black Americans are more likely than white Americans to be arrested, and once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted, and once convicted, they're more likely to experience a lengthy prison sentence. Those are conversations that we need to have. And I know that many of us don't want to have the conversation. I don't want to have the conversation. I find the conversation insulting because it implies that something that I desperately hate is true about me. But we have a responsibility to call sin for what it is. And it appears that there is a strong undercurrent of racism that still exists within our country despite years of Diligent effort by good people to root it out. And we've got to stand on the simple truth that we cannot follow Christ and tolerate injustice at the same time. To love Christ is to follow his call for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And to surrender to Christ leaves no room for the treating of fellow image bearers of God with hatred or disdain or disrespect. And we're not talking about people from another religion or people from another culture. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Men and women who worship the same God, who have been bought by the same Savior. Some of our strongest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, are our African-American brothers and sisters. And I want you to hear this. Now more than ever, these are people that we need. Because nobody knows how to live under the oppression that is coming to us like those who have lived under oppression for the last several hundred years. You want to know how we're going to survive when the government comes in to shut down our churches? We're going to lean on them. And we're going to learn from them. The truth is that we live in a country that has come a long way and yet still has a long way to go. And that we as Christian members of a society have a responsibility to work towards justice. 
not to hide from it. We've got to begin by admitting and lamenting the sin of racism in the United States. And this means seeking out information. It means learning about things that make us uncomfortable. And maybe understanding that we have a deep interest in denying the forms of oppression that benefit us. We may also have an interest in denying the forms of oppression that harm us. I don't know what the answer to racism is in the United States. That's not my job. My job as a minister of the gospel is to tell you that I know what the answer to all human sin is. And that is in the light of Christ to ask God to search our hearts. Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Brothers and sisters, we have to, in humility, go before God and say, show me where I'm going wrong. Search me and show me if there is something in me that is not righteous. We know that if any man sins, that it says that he does not sin, that he is a liar and the truth is not in him. But we need to understand the other side of this too. See, we have to respond to the injustice of racism with calm truth and deep introspection. But we also have to respond to the rage of our time with truth. The truth is that we live in a sinful world. And people are fallen creatures. We are not progressing towards a perfected form of humanity. That's a lie. And the more you believe in it and buy into it, the more you're going to be disappointed every time we fall down. One of the most cataclysmic things that happened in Western civilization was World War I. Because up to that point, everybody thought that human beings were progressing to a bright and beautiful future until everybody killed each other on the fields of Flanders. Brothers and sisters, we are not getting better. The only thing that makes us better is the blood of Christ that transforms us. Our depravity is simply morphing and changing as the world around us changes and morphs. And yet in the midst of the sin and the brokenness, we know that things can and should be different, right? That's the tension, we know things aren't right and we want them to be better. That's because we're image bearers of God. That is the reflection of God within us as we know that there is true beauty and true justice and true mercy and we reach out and we strive for it and we look for it. As image bearers and custodians of our world, we have a creation mandate to work against the forces of sin and dissolution in our society. That, but this means channeling the righteous anger we feel in a productive way. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean being a Facebook warrior. I am so sick to death of Facebook warriors. People who are super brave about saying amazing things on Facebook. You know what Facebook is worth? Nothing. We can put our service out on Facebook Live. So that's great. But you know whose people's opinions you change 
When you post something long and abusive on Facebook, no one. You know what's changed when you black out your Facebook page? Nothing. Nothing changes. It makes you feel better. It's value signaling. You'd be like, look how cool I am. I'm super woke. I blacked out my Facebook page. Did you do anything? Did you convince anybody of anything? No. You jumped on a bandwagon. Instead, we have to face this in a productive way. And this means that we need to heed the words of Paul who spoke about rage and anger in this way. Be angry. It's okay to be angry at human sin. It's okay to be angry at injustice. That righteous indignation you feel when bad people do bad stuff, when you watch the tape of the guy getting choked out and you feel bad about it, that's okay. You should be angry. But what does it say? Be angry and don't sin. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't dwell on it or own it or, or let it poison you. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. You can be angry, but don't sin. But only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Institutionalized racism is a complex problem and it's not solved by meaningless acts of social posturing. I can't tell you how many messages that I got from stores telling me about their, what they think about this whole issue. I'm really glad that REI is against killing unarmed black people by the police. That's great. Thanks, REI. Fantastic. If only we had laws that prevented that. Oh, wait, we do. It's not solved by burning down department stores. Looting is not an act of protest. It's an act of wanton destruction by people who just want to see stuff burn. I was 18 once. I know what that's like. I like to burn stuff. That's not an act of social... protest. Instead, we must speak to those who are desperately angry at the injustices that they see with calm words of peace, sympathy, and a true desire to see change actuated. This is what it means to work towards peace in our community. We must seek to see everyone as God sees them and to live up the truths of the gospel in our daily lives. Listen to this. That same man wrote another poem called I Too Sing America. One of my friends posted this on his Facebook page. Well, there, I guess that affected me. <laughs> But it just struck me. It said, I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I will be at the table when company comes. Nobody will care. They'll say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. Brothers and sisters, no one should see the beauty 
of our African-American brothers and sisters like we who understand that we are one race. No one should rage against injustice like those who know what true justice looks like. And no one should work for peace as much as we who follow the Prince of Peace. Will you pray with me now? Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with us today. That you would transform our minds and our hearts. That you would help us to know and to perceive the injustice around us. That you would give us the strength to work towards unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh Lord, we are so sorry for the times that we fall short of your glory. We ask that you would give us the strength and the courage to work towards peace in our community by speaking truth in love and sharing the gospel with the people around us. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. As we prepare to leave this place, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to reach out to our African-American brothers and sisters out there. I want to encourage you to develop friendships with people that may think differently from you and to seek to find the truth that God has for all of us. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.